Nehemiah chapter 4, but it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish? Stones that, have been, that are burned. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversary said that they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall and the openings and set people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plots nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked the construction while the other half held the spears, the shields, and the bows, and wore armor, and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked the construction or the other held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, The work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half the men held the spears from daybreak until stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, Let each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem, so, that, so they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. Thank you, Brother Ray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity now to turn to your word. And I pray, Lord, that uh, as we have... I rejoiced and enjoyed so much of the service today. I pray, Father, that now we would rejoice at what you have for us here. Teach us, Lord. Fill me with your spirit. Help this time to be profitable and useful. I pray that there's nothing uh, boring or, uh, or uh, 
trite and cliche about any of this stuff today. I pray, Father, that you would just speak to us in a mighty way. And I pray, Lord, that first of all, you'd speak to me. Lord, you have spoken to me as I've studied and prepared, but I pray that uh, that wouldn't be over yet. I pray, Father, you continue to preach these truths to me even as I, as I share today. So use this time. I pray for these, your people. Lord, I pray that you'd meet needs. I pray, Father, if there are those here today who, who do not know you as Savior, that uh, somewhere in this, in this message they'll, they'll hear and understand and the Holy Spirit will get hold of their heart. Lord, they'll see their need to be saved today. And I pray if there are Christians here who are uh, in need of encouragement uh, for any number of reasons, I pray, Lord, that you would just lift up their spirits today. Uh, teach us, Father. There's so much truth in this passage. Teach us. Speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to speak to you today on the topic, enemies all around. Enemies all around. In chapter 3, which we looked at last week, we rejoiced with Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem as the wall building project got started. It was the first time we actually saw them pick up bricks. We saw a fired up team, and we saw them just get right down to it. And we saw a couple things. We saw how important leadership was to the success of that project. Nehemiah, of course, all throughout this thing exhibits wonderful leadership skills. And we saw that in chapter 3. We also saw Eliashib, the high priest, be the first one to pick up a brick and start laying bricks. So we saw him exhibiting some leadership. Uh, we've used this quote, everything rises and falls on leadership many times, but it, it may be a key quote for this particular book. I don't know, because it fits so well, we'll probably say it again and again. That truth was definitely demonstrated in chapter 3. But we also learned something else, didn't we? We learned the importance of teamwork. In that project, there was a massive team. We read about it in chapter 3, all of them following the leadership of Nehemiah and Eliashib, and ultimately God. But it was a team. A team project gathered from various locations, various locations, various families. Uh, some people very, very committed. Some not. Some people working very, very hard, going the extra mile. Some not. But it was a team. And as a team, following their leaders, they accomplished something that hadn't been thought impossible, right? They managed to get the, the wall started. They went further than it happened any time up to this point. Well, now we come to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we see that news of that success is starting to get out. Look at verse number 1. Verse number 1 says, Samballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall. Samballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall. News was starting to get out. And it's true, isn't it? Anytime, anytime we see God does a work in a church or in a home, in a family, or in a life, people notice. Isn't that true? It's certainly true. We've seen it here in this church. Every time we take a step forward as a church, people notice. Uh, silly little examples. I remember when we first changed that sign out there. We had that old sign, and when we finally got rid of that sign and put the new one out, people noticed. We had people stop there the very next week. People noticed that something was happening. We took our sod out of the back and replaced it with gravel and put it in a parking lot. People noticed. Uh, pretty soon we're going to have scaffolding or maybe a lift or something out here as we start working on the, on the uh, steeple. I'll bet you people are going to notice. Because anytime God does something, in a church, people notice. That's why we keep going forward, keep pushing forward all the time. And when God does work in, does a work in a life, people notice. I, I believe if we, if we go around here this morning and ask for a show of hands, I think that we could probably find that every Christian here would say, yeah, uh, when I gave my life to Christ, people notice. Uh, when I put my trust and faith in Him, people notice. When I was born again, when I was saved, when I, when I became a Christian, people noticed. Family noticed, friends noticed, co-workers 
noticed. And that's what's happening here in chapter 4, is it not? Something is happening in Jerusalem. They're noticing that the piles of rubble that have encircled that town for so long, just rubbish, is all of a sudden now taking shape. It's rising. These people who have been so demoralized and smashed down, all of a sudden have a purpose. And, and they're working together, side by side, and accomplishing something. And the wall is going up, and people seem filled with a new pride. And Jerusalem is a hopping place now, and things are happening. People are noticing. Look at some of the people who noticed. It's very interesting. Sam Ballot noticed. Sam Ballot was an uh, administrative official of some sort from Samaria. Samaria is to the north of Jerusalem. Tobiah, notice, did you see that? Tobiah was an Ammonite official. Ammon was to the east of Jerusalem. Geshem, notice, now it doesn't say that, it just says the Arabs here. But back in chapter 2 and verse number 19, we have a name associated with that, Geshem, the Arab. And of course, Arabia was to the south of Jerusalem. All these are enemies. Sanballat, an enemy to the north. Tobiah, an enemy to the east. Geshem, an enemy to the south. And now here, we see in uh, chapter 4 and verse number 7, that all of a sudden now we have the Ashdodites, who have noticed. As, that's Philist, the Philistines. The Philistines are to the west of Jerusalem. And we've seen all of these guys except the Ashdodites in previous chapters, but now here's what we see. We see from all sides, from every direction, from the north, the south, the east, the west, people notice the enemies of God are noticing what is happening in Jerusalem. And they were enemies. They didn't want this work to continue. They were enemies of the people of God. They were enemies of the work of God. They were enemies of God himself. I would suggest to you today that we could describe them under the heading of enemies from without. That's what those people were. And in spite of the enemies from without, in spite of the fact that they're massing together and they're threatening, and we're going to see a little bit more of that as we go down through here, nonetheless, the work continued. And we see here in this passage that they actually reached the halfway point. Look at verse number 6. Verse number 6, we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, so the people had a mind to work. And so in spite of all these enemies from without, their threats, their possibility of attack, the fact that they're completely ringed and surrounded by it, nonetheless, they continue to work. But something even more insidious was happening here than just enemies from without. In addition to that, there were some enemies from within. Did you notice that in there? Enemies from within. There was the old enemy of weariness and discouragement. Look at verse number 10. I think verse number 10 is such a picturesque verse. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. And there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. Discouragement and weariness. Verse number 12 says the old enemy of fear was raising its head. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came, they told us, ten times from wherever place you turn, they will be upon us. And I would suggest that those inside enemies, enemies from within, were far worse than the Ammonites and the Ashdodites and the Philistines and and all of them, and sent Ballot and Tobiah combined. Those actually seemed to almost stop the project. Now, when faced with such a withering assault, both from within and without, a lot of people would have stopped, would they not? They would have given up, they would have thrown in the towel, they would have quit. But Nehemiah didn't. 
he did some things about it. The wonderful things that are mentioned in this passage. One of the things that we see in verses 4 and 5 is he prayed. Look at that. He said, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn that reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. He prayed. Always Nehemiah's first defense. Always Nehemiah's first offense. I've been reading a book by Terry C. Muck. It's called Liberating the Leader's Prayer Life. And he had this in there. He said, one pastor has a sign on his desk that says simply, pray first. Too often we ignore that sound advice and instead analyze first. But that wasn't what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah prayed first. Always prayed first. We saw it over in chapter 1 and verse number 4. We saw it in chapter 2 and verse number 4. Here we see it in chapter 4 and verse number 4. I wonder why it's always verse 4. I'm not quite sure I understand that, it's interesting, is it not? Always pray. Always pray. And it's, it's also interesting, the type of prayer he prayed. You ever pray like that? Smash him, Lord! That's basically what he said. You ever pray like that? It's called an imprecatory prayer. Yeah, and we see examples of it all throughout the Bible. It's basically a prayer calling down the wrath of God on the enemies of God. You ever pray that way? How many of you ever prayed a prayer like that? Yeah, yeah. A few of you have. I have. And yet, you know, some people would say, should Christians really pray that way? I mean, didn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and curse you? He didn't say that. So how do we pray like that? And didn't Paul say in Romans chapter 12, uh, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse? And yet here he is. Hear our prayer, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads. Give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Smash I read some things that might help us with this a little bit. One person said, The imprecations invoked here may seem harsh, cruel, and vindictive, but it must be remembered that Nehemiah and his friends regarded those Samaritan leaders as enemies to the cause of God and his people, and therefore as deserving to be visited with heavy judgments. The prayer, therefore, is to be considered as emanating from hearts in which neither hatred, revenge, nor any inferior passion, but a pious and patriotic zeal for the glory of God and the success of his cause held the ascendant sway. That's kind of wordy. But let me share another one that maybe makes it a little simpler. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, in his book, Be Determined, said this. He said, Nehemiah was praying as a servant of God concerned for the glory of God. He was not requesting personal vengeance, and I think that's the key. He was not requesting personal vengeance, but official vindication for God's people. Jesus is an example of this, is he not? When he went walking into the temple, swinging a whip. He didn't say, you guys have offended me. He didn't say it was personal. He said, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. It was about God and the glory of God that he was disgusted. And so I think that's the same with Nehemiah. He prayed. He prayed. He not only prayed, he also fought back. This chapter is a wonderful illustration of building and battling. Remember the topic of the title of our whole series is Building and Battling and Becoming. And that building and battling thought is probably seen nowhere more clearly than it is here in chapter 4. He built and he battled. He had them built and battled simultaneously at the same time. Look at some of the things he did. Look at verse number 9. In verse number 9 it says... Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. He set a watch. He set lookouts in place to provide early warning against attack. Look at verse number 13. 
Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall and at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. He placed armed guards in the most vulnerable places, armed and ready to fight. Verse number 16 tells me he instituted a split shift system. That's, that's kind of cool. He was, a, he was a kind of a forward thinker there. He had half the workers laying bricks and the other half standing guard with their swords and their shields at the ready. He wasn't satisfied with that though. He also, even those who were working, he trained them. He made sure that even when they were working, the men were armed and able and ready to defend themselves. Verse number 17, those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked the construction and with the other they held the weapon. That must have been a little bit cumbersome to do. But he was making certain that they were safe. And not only that, he took the lead in it. He took the lead in it, just as he took the lead in the building. He continued throughout this passage to remind the people who was in charge and whom they served. Notice he said in verse number 14, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. And then he placed himself in the thick of the action. And he put the, uh, the alarm right there with his finger on the alarm uh, so that he could instantly call in reinforcements when needed. Verse number 18, the one who sounded the trumpet was by me. Verse number 20, whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us. Our God will fight for us. And so he prayed, and then he continued building. But he also bowed and made ready to protect them. Well, I'm sure there's all kinds of lessons that we could get out of this passage, but I want to suggest to you this morning that there are two that we could apply to ourselves. Two particular applications, if you will, that we could apply to ourselves from this. One of them is this. You may experience enemies from without. You may. And you may, or you will, the second one is, you will experience enemies from within. Those are the two thoughts I want to share with you. You may have enemies from without. You will have enemies from within. Think about the enemies from without for just a moment now. Now, they had a couple of here, a couple of enemies here. And the enemies uh, basically used two different things, two different attacks, which I would suggest we may also experience. First of all, they ridiculed. And secondly, they persecuted. They ridiculed. Sanballat started his attack with ridicule. And just as he did that, I think you and I can expect in our walk with God, that we may face ridicule. Anybody ever face ridicule in your walk with God? It's really not an unusual thing. Goliath ridiculed David. Remember that? Little old David, the only real man in the whole army, stood up against Goliath, and Goliath looked at him and said, Am I a dog? She would send this punk child to come after me. Ridiculed him. Jesus was mocked by soldiers during his trial. Experienced ridicule. And by the crowd as he hung on the cross, he was mocked and ridiculed. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 36 tells me that in the roll call of heroes of faith, some of the people who went through so many different things that are described here in Hebrews chapter 11, one of the things they went through was trial of mockings. Ridicule. So why should we be any different? Why should we expect to be any different? You and I may, in our walk with God, face ridicule. You know, I think some people never meet Christ, never come to be Christians because uh, they are so afraid of ridicule. They're so concerned about what others would think and what friends and family would think that they never, well, they never trust Christ. They never get that far. I tend to think this is a bigger problem for men than for women. Maybe that's just me. I think sometimes we men are absolute cowards about this kind of stuff. We're so worried that our friends will make fun of us. I'm not sure women are as bad about that. Maybe they are, I don't know. But the fact is, the fact is, some people never come to Christ and that is what keeps them away. What other people will think. 
ridicule. Some people who do meet Christ and are saved never grow. They don't progress. They sit like lumps. They don't do anything for God. And, 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 and it's because they're, they're afraid somebody will think I'm holier than thou or I, I, I'm a bad. And so they don't go anywhere. They don't accomplish anything. It's all the fear of ridicule, isn't it? Some, some will experience beyond ridicule. Some will experience outright persecution. And we don't have this big of a problem in, in, in America. We talk about this, but yet it keeps coming up. It keeps coming up. Every time we go through Scripture, it seems like there's some mention of persecution. It's all throughout the Bible. It's not a big problem yet in America. But it does continue to grow here. We need to be prepared for it. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. So I believe it's possible. You may, you may experience those kinds of enemies from without. Enemies that will ridicule. Enemies that will persecute. I don't think all Christians face those things. But I think some may. But the second point is you will have enemies from within. You will have enemies. And I don't think I go too far in saying that I think this is almost a certainty. I think this is something that every believer needs to realize they're going to face. It's pretty universal. If you avoid these enemies from within, you would definitely be in the minority of the Christian experience, I think. And the enemies from within that are mentioned here are discouragement and weariness and fear. I think if you're a servant of the Lord, you're going to get weary in the work. But the verse number 10 again, the strength of the laborers is failing. The strength of the laborers is failing. I believe you're going to get tired in the task. I believe you're going to get weary in the work. In 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 27, Paul was listing a great long list of all the things that he had suffered and gone through and all the trials that he had been through. And one of the things he says there, 2 Corinthians 11, 27, he said, weariness and toil and sleeplessness often. Weariness. I, I, I have a, a quote that I have quoted several times from Bill Clinton. I, I know I heard him say this one time. Bill Clinton said one time, the world is run by tired people. And yet today, as I was preparing for this this morning, I was preparing for this before I came down to church, and I thought, you know, I've never really verified that quote. I should perhaps go out and verify that. So I went out and Googled it to the only references to that quote that came up were my own sermons that I have preached that are published online. So I have no idea if he ever really said it. It's a great quote. If he didn't say it, I'd probably never quote from him, ever. That's the only thing I ever heard him say alike. The world is run by tired people. And even if it's not something he said, it's a true statement. We're going to experience weariness. And if you're one of the ones who works and labors in the church for the Lord, you're going to experience it. One of my favorite comic strips is Dilbert. Anybody besides me like Dilbert? Uh, like I know Ray's got to love Dilbert. You probably see yourself in there. My favorite character in the Dilbert's comic strips is Wally. Wally is a little short, fat guy who walks around holding a cup of coffee all the time. I'm not going to ask you why you think that's my favorite in the, in the group, but it is. Wally walks around. And in one of my favorite uh, uh, strips, episodes, he confronts his boss, Wally does, and he says, you know what? Lately, I've been feeling a lot of pressure to do work. And his boss looks at him, kind of with the snake eye, and says, well, 
you do realize this is your job, right? And he says, there, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And I can relate so much to Wally. And we in churches, I think, can relate to Wally because there's always going to be Wallys in the church. There's always going to be Tekoites who don't necessarily put their shoulders to the work as previous chapter, verse 5 talked about. There's always going to be some who will sip coffee while the laborers work themselves to death. And I don't mean to criticize that group today because there's all kinds of reasons for people to rest in a church. That's not my point. My point is to say to the ones who are doing the work, are doing the work, that there, there is an answer to that. And Nehemiah tells us what it is. You're going to get weary. You're going to get tired. And I believe that the answer for those who do that, those who labor and feel their strength decaying, is the same as what Nehemiah, what did he do? He prayed, he fought, and he said, remember who you serve. That was his answer. Pray, fought, remember who you serve. Verse number 9, Nehemiah said, we made our prayer to God. So too must we. Weariness overcomes us, we must pray. We must pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers to come and assist. We must pray without ceasing, we must make our prayer to God. If you're a servant of God, you're going to experience weariness. If you're a servant of God, you're also going to experience discouragement. Discouragement. Verse 10 goes on. There is so much rubbish that we are not able to build a wall. There is so much rubbish. You ever feel like that? I felt like that. What a picture that is of discouragement. So much rubbish that we're not able to build. You know the best Christians who have ever lived have experienced discouragement. You know, John the Baptist experienced discouragement. John the Baptist, in what I think is one of the most uh, telling passages in the Bible, Luke chapter 7, verse number 18, John calling two of his disciples to him. He was in jail at the time, close to the end of his life. John calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Wow. What an amazing picture of discouragement. This John... John, who had pointed a finger at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. John, who had watched the, the Holy Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and rest on his shoulder. John, who had heard the word of the very word of God from heaven say, This is my beloved son, John. He's sitting there in prison and discouragement and washing over him. And he says, Are you really the one? I'm amazed by that. Discouragement comes upon us all. Elijah was one of the great prophets in the Old Testament. He had one of the greatest victories recorded in the Bible. He went up on Mount Carmel one time, and 400 of the prophets of Baal were there. He thought he was the only one left serving God. He said, I'm the only one left, God. And he had this wonderful victory where you could read about it. He, he prayed down fire from heaven and wiped out all 400 of those prophets of Baal. It was a wonderful, wonderful victory for him and for God. And almost immediately after that, this horrible funk of discouragement came over him, and he went running out into the wilderness and sat down under a juniper tree and prayed, God, I'm ready to die. Take me home. The best of Christians face discouragement. Charles Spurgeon was one of the 19th century's greatest preachers and theologians. If you read the biographies of his life, you see he suffered from terrible bouts of depression throughout his ministry. You and I are not immune from discouragement. And so what's the answer when these enemies from within would threaten to take us down? It's the same as what Nehemiah used as an answer here. Pray and fight. Remember who you serve. Remember the Lord. Fight discouragement. Fight it. Yesterday we had our, our, mo our monthly men's prayer meeting. 
We had several meetings, several people gathered around. I always enjoy those times. We were talking yesterday about uh, holding the line against sin and temptation. And, and we, we talk about things that are particular to men and those things as, as probably we should. And, and so we were talking particularly about sins like lust and pornography and things like that. And we were reading some thoughts from Pastor John Piper, who is pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. I think Minneapolis. And uh, there, was a, uh, there was a quote in there about fighting and holding the line. And he's talking specifically about fighting against those types of temptations. But I want to just share this quote, because I think it applies any, any place where we need to fight against anything, even, even discouragement like what we're talking about here. Here's what he said. He said, hold the promise and the pleasure of Christ firmly in your mind until it pushes the other images out. Remember, what he's talking about is pornography. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 3.1. Here is where many fail. They give in too soon. They say, I tried to push it out and it didn't work. And I ask, how long did you try? How hard did you exert your mind? The mind is a muscle. You can flex it with vehemence. Take the kingdom violently, Matthew 11 and 12. Now listen to this part. Be brutal. Hold the promise of Christ before your eyes. Hold it. Hold it. Don't let it go. Keep holding it. How long? As long as it takes. Fight. For Christ's sake, fight till you win. If an electric garage door opener were about to crush your child, you would hold it up with all your might and holler for help and hold it and hold it and hold it and hold it. Fight. Fight against discouragement. If you're a servant of God, you're going to experience weariness. You're going to experience discouragement. And I would suggest if you're a servant of the Lord, you may even experience fear. Look at verse number 12. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came. They told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. They told us ten times. They're all around us. The enemies are everywhere. They're going to be upon us from everywhere we look. And of course we know from the north, the south, the east, and the west, they were surrounding them. That little phrase, uh, they told us ten times, it doesn't actually mean just ten specific times. It's one of those phrases that, that has a broader meaning. Basically what it means is over and over. Over and over. They told us repeatedly, you're surrounded. They're going to be abundant. The fact is, if we're a servant of the Lord, sometimes we experience fear. The Bible is filled with fear not, but we experience it anyway, don't we? Does fear enter your mind when you, uh, you read about Islamic extremists beheading Christians in other lands? And then you also read about the tsunami of Islamic influences sweeping across our land. Does that make you fear? Does fear enter your mind, parents, when Christian parents are threatened with the loss of their children just simply because they desire to raise them for the Lord? Just simply because they desire to apply biblical principles in their life? Does fear enter your mind when you read about men or women losing their jobs simply because they took a stand for Christ before co-workers? Does fear enter your mind, teachers, when you are constantly told that any reference to God or Christ or Christianity or prayer or the Bible could threaten a lawsuit from the ACLU? that make you fear. And by the way, if you want to pray an imprecatory prayer, aim it at the ACLU. That's one that I pray constantly God would wipe off the face of the earth. It's an instrument of the devil. 
spear into your mind, patriot, when you read about what's going on in our country, you see the Christian principles upon which this nation was founded eroding and ridiculed and attacked and vilified and even astonishing to get illegal? Does fear enter your mind when these things happen? What's the answer? The exact same answer is for Nehemiah. Pray. Fight. And remember our God. Remember who we serve. First John chapter 4, verse number 4 says, You are a God little children to overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world I love the story of Elisha and I'll tell you this one last story we're basically done I love the story of Elisha and his servants in the Old Testament this is in 2 Kings chapter 6 they looked out one day or actually the servants of Elisha looked out the window and they were surrounded by the enemies of God armies encamped all around them. he came to Elisha and he said what are we going to do and Elisha answered, and he said, Don't fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. They that be with us are more than they that be with them. They built... And as they built, they faced opposition, they faced enemies, they faced enemies from without, they faced enemies from within. They learned how to hold a trout on one hand and a sword in the other. And they just kept right on building. They learned how to build and battle at the same time. As we close this morning, I just want to ask you one question. I want you to think about it. What walls are enemies from without or enemies from within rising against in your life? walls. There are a couple that come to my mind that I could think of. And if, you're, if you're a Christian, I think perhaps the wall of standing firm in Christ to the end might be one. Do you find yourself, Christian, struggling to keep on? Are the enemies from without of ridicule and persecution threatening to stop you, or are you weary or discouraged? Tired in the work?
too late.